Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom. I'm Brian Barnett, the creator and host of The Last Symptom. I appreciate you joining me this week. Topics. We're going to be talking about relationships. This is going to be probably The Last Symptom's big relationship episode that you may want to come back to from time to time. Of course, can't really talk about relationships without talking about love, the big L word, right? And we're going to talk about all of the different qualities that make up love. And we're going to play the why exercise. We're not just going to say love does this and it does this and it does this other thing. We're going to play the why exercise. We're going to say, okay, that's the way it behaves, but why? So stick around. we got to do the disclaimer and the introduction music first. I'll be right here when it ends. I'm Brian Barnett. I'm just a regular guy. I'm not a doctor. I have no legal license in any field of psychology. But I did live a large part of my life with borderline personality disorder unknowingly. And I really did rid myself of the disorder completely and permanently. Through that, I've become an expert on issues involving emotional health. I accept no responsibility whatsoever for your feelings, thoughts, behaviors, decisions, and actions, including your decision to watch or listen to this show at all. But I do hope you might benefit yourself from the insights I share. we are new episode of the last symptom podcast and like i said earlier i'm happy to have you here i think this is going to be a nice rich discussion let's do some announcements uh thelastsymptom.com is my website full of free and paid resources hope you'll take advantage of that and um kind of a rare thing these days but uh i posted a new article to thelastsymptom.com so if you ain't been over there in a while it might be worth running over and checking that that little article out um what was the theme the theme was the way people behave when they're doing things out of an oblig sense of obligation say guilt or shame uh, as opposed to how people behave when they're doing something out of love and uh, so it's a really insightful little article there at thelastsymptom.com. Of course, there's all kinds of links and stuff over there that you can take advantage of. Uh, second announcement is our online community is on the Locals platform. That's L-O-C-A-L-S. And uh, boy, we got a real nice group over there. Now, the reason why that group is so important is because that's where all of the last symptom activity takes place, including live streams, which we do on Mondays. So if you'd like to interact with me, uh, weekly locals is the place to do it the way you join is you go to the last in your web browser or you can download the locals.com app from the app store and then just search for uh, the last symptom by brian barnett within of course if you just go to the last as i mentioned earlier all the webs all the uh, links that you need are right there I want to mention 
the fundamentals course, the last symptom fundamentals course. That's a two week intensive pre-recorded course, video course. You can uh, find out more information about that on thelastsymptom.com if you'd like to have a uh, a giant, humongous leap in your understanding about the things you're dealing with if you've got an emotional disorder. The Last Symptom Fundamentals course is the course for you to take, and of course that helps support the work that I do here and allows me to continue doing this, so I appreciate anybody who uh, enrolls in that course. Let's do some casual talk here. How have you all been? I've got a little girl, eight years old. She's sick. Uh, she's got her tonsils. I don't have my tonsils. I have my, t- I, and I fact, I remember having my tonsils taken out. I, I think I was three or four years old when they took out my tonsils, and I remember that it wasn't pleasant. Um, I I've always had a high pain pain tolerance. In fact, the doctors and stuff even back then w- would always say man, this kid just doesn't complain. Uh, I would just, discomfort, I would just take, I would just take it. And uh, I remember coming out of the anesthesia after that surgery, after getting my tonsils taken out. Man, just feeling like my throat was on fire. And uh, But I didn't complain about it. <laughs> um, but I remember how miserable that was. And I don't really wish that on my daughter, you know. And she's been having some trouble with her tonsils. They, they, she gets sick, and man, they grow. They get ginormous. So uh, back in January, I took her to the doctor uh, because she had fever and stuff like that. But she never come down sick. And uh, I shined a flashlight down her throat, and I saw that her tonsils were about the size of uh, the Rock of Gibraltar. So I took her to the doctor, and the doctor said, well, we'll give her some uh, antibiotics. That brought him down. Well, she's sick again. And I shined the old flashlight down her throat. And, yeah, so uh took her to the doctor again. I thought he was going to say it was the same thing. But they swabbed her and all that, and it come back that she has uh, the flu. And that's crazy to me because she's had the flu all week, and I ain't come down with it yet. So fingers crossed, everybody, that I don't come down with the flu. But, I mean, it looks like I've dodged a bullet. And I I haven't really been isolating myself from her or anything like that. So uh, maybe maybe this is just one of those strains that I'm immune to. That's a nice thought, ain't it? It reminds me of, uh, what's that Stephen King book? That post-apocalyptic thing. Um, not the Dark Tower thinking about the one where captain trips that virus wipes out like almost the entire population of earth what was the name of that book anyway yeah you folks who know know the book i'm talking about um when i was reading that book i was thinking man how cool it would be something like that wipes across the earth and you happen to be like there's something about you that makes you completely immune to what is killing everybody else. <laughs> um, I know that's that's pretty uh, that's, that's pretty gloomy <laughs> way to think, but that's that's honestly what I was thinking when I was reading the book. Oh wow, you know, because of course that's what you're supposed to be imagining. Uh, I'd imagine that Stephen King wants you when you're reading that book to be uh, imagining yourself in that environment where there's just you know 
few thousand people left on Earth. Kind of a fascinating idea. Let's see if I can find the name of that book. Uh, Stephen King, The Stand. The Stand. That's the book I'm thinking of. Yeah, it was The Stand. One of my favorite books. So, maybe that's the explanation for why my daughter has the flu and I and I ain't got it yet. Yeah, emphasis on yet, right? Well, how you all doing? Uh, here we are getting ready to come into spring. Boy, that was a short winter. I don't know about for you folks, but it seemed like a short winter for me. And I love winter. Got some plans to get out into the backcountry here coming right up. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, packing and planning and Man, I just want to get lost out there for many days and nights and see what adventures await me out there. And I'm going into an area where, hopefully, winter still has a, a hearty presence because that's my favorite environment to be out in the woods. When things are still, it warms up a little bit during the day, but then it's like freezing at night when you're all tucked in and everything. You got the nice fire going and all that stuff. So that's uh, that catches you up to my life pretty much. Is there anything else going on? Oh, um, one one other announcement. You can watch this if you're just listening to the audio. Uh, you can watch this as a video on YouTube and Rumble. Forgot to say that. Uh, the reason why I bring that up is because I'm about to talk about my beard. I've got a beard, and some people say, you know, it's amazing that uh, your your hair has lots of white and gray in it, but your beard don't. Well, that's because I dyed my beard. And so now I kind of look like uh, Walker, Texas Ranger. <laughs> I always thought, uh, I never watched that show, but, you know, it's got, uh, what's his name, the karate guy, Chuck Norris. And I always thought, that beard, there's something doesn't look right about that beard. I think it was because he was dying the beard. He was already a pretty old man by the time he was doing that show. But yeah, so my beard has died, and what happens is that uh, after I did it, uh, it takes a while. It takes like a couple weeks for the grays and stuff to start growing back into it. So right now I kind of look like Walker, Texas Ranger with my gray hair on the top. Well, it's not really gray, would you say? It's like grayish brown and, uh, and a brown beard. Uh, what am I, what are my plans with the beard? Well, I'm planning on, uh, letting it continue to grow until probably about June. My, my intentions are to, to trim it down in June, if not shave it completely off. So what do you guys think? You let me know in the comments or get a, join us over there on locals and you let me know what you think. Should I keep the beard growing? Should I shave it off? Cause what I'd like to do is do like, uh, summers with, with no beard. And then maybe like every November, start doing like a no-shave November and just, you know, let it grow during the wintertime. Okay, enough about me, enough about beards, enough about all those things. Let's talk about why you're here. Because uh, I said we're going to talk about relationships, right? So you're here. And I'm here to talk about relationships. I hear a lot of people talking about healthy relationships and unhealthy relationships. In fact, um, 
a lot of people, when they're having problems in their marriage, what do they do? They go to marriage counselors, right? And what does the marriage counselor, what is the marriage counselor's focus? It's on the marriage, isn't it? So healthy relationships, unhealthy relationships, think about the terminology, healthy relationships, unhealthy relationships, marriage counseling. What, what do you know that we've talked about here makes terms like healthy marriage, unhealthy marriage, sorry, I'm not, I didn't mean to flip everybody off. Uh, I'm counting down off my fingers. Uh, okay, so let's do it like this. Healthy marriages, unhealthy marriages, marriage counseling, healthy relationships, unhealthy relationships. Why, why is this all complete bunk? Why is it utter nonsense, these words? I'm going to tell you why. It's because there's no such thing as healthy relationships or unhealthy relationships. And there's no such thing as marriage counseling. There's only such thing as healthy people and unhealthy people. There's no such thing as healthy relationships or unhealthy relationships. Because this thing that we call healthy relationship, what is that for real? I mean, in real life, what is that? It's just two people. It's just two people and their interactions together. Do you see that there is no such thing as a personified relationship? But marriage is not... When you say that uh, a marriage can be healthy or not, what you're doing is you're personifying an idea. You're saying that this idea, this abstract non-existent thing, which is just in our minds, by the way, can get sick. It can be healthy. It can be unhealthy. But a marriage and a relationship can't be unhealthy or healthy any more than um, I have plans, for example, to build a cabin in the woods. Is this imaginary idea of this cabin in the woods, which does not exist, it does not physically exist. Can it be healthy or unhealthy? No. It's just an idea. Marriage is just an idea. It's not a, it's not a physical thing. It can't be healthy or unhealthy. It's not even an emotional thing so that it can be healthy or unhealthy. No, a marriage, a relationship is just a, an abstract thing. So there's no such thing as healthy, uh, healthy relationships or unhealthy relationships. There's only such thing as healthy people and unhealthy people. And this thing that people call a healthy marriage or an unhealthy marriage is simply made up of a healthy person, of healthy people or unhealthy people. So the marriage itself, the relationship itself, can't be healthy or unhealthy. Only people can be. This is the reason why, and back to marriage counseling. Isn't it interesting? You're going to counsel the marriage? You're going to counsel the marriage? See, 
marriage counseling is an idiotic term because you can counsel people. You can counsel people, but you can't counsel this non-existent thing, this, this idea, which is just an ethereal, abstract idea, marriage. You can counsel people, you can't counsel marriages. Again, marriage counseling is personifying a non-existent thing, an idea. That's all it is. So in order to uh, create this idea of marriage counseling, you have to (laughs) inappropriately personify marriage in your mind so then you've got something to counsel you know that's it's an important distinction to make these are important things because as long as you don't think about it and you just buy buy the notion that marriage marriages can be healthy or unhealthy there's a lot of things that are happening there first of all it's deflection is deflection instead of saying unhealthy people you 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 don't blame the people you blame the marriage do you see that immediately then from the very beginning one's attention is in the wrong place it's being deflected somewhere where uh, it can do absolutely nothing if you're perceiving the marriage as the problem, then there's there's no improvements to be made there. You can't improve a marriage. You can't improve people. People can improve themselves. And when we're talking about unhealthy marriages, this term, which is is completely bogus, it's it's about a thing that does not exist. Um, it's deflecting. A person's focus away from the real problem. The real pro- problem is not the marriage. The problem, the real problem, is the unhealthy people in the marriage. Right? You ever hear of somebody getting a divorce, and then they go and they get into another relationship, and they they have the same types of problems in the new relationship as they had in the other. Um. Why did that happen? Because they falsely identified the marriage as being the problem. So they said the marriage is the problem. The marriage is what is unhealthy. So I need to change the marriage. So I'm going to leave. I'm going to break up this marriage. I'm going to go over and get into a new relationship or a new marriage. And that'll fix the thing, right? But what has happened? What has happened is that the real problem was never identified or addressed. What was the real problem? The people. The people, including the person who left that marriage and went and got into another marriage. So the people are the same. And whatever the problems the people had, what did they do when they left? They took those same problems to the new relationship. Think about this. Think about the problems in judgment that the person had when um, they chose to get into the first marriage. Do you think when that person leaves that marriage or that relationship, do you think those problems 
in the their judgment in choosing the first partner will not follow them to all of their other relationships that they choose to get into? Yeah, of course. Because if they had a problem in judgment and a problem in recognizing healthy or unhealthy people or recognizing people's uh, people with good qualities or bad qualities or recognizing people that are good for them or not good for them, if, if they had that problem originally, that explains why they got into the relationship with the person that they did. But then they say the problem is not me or what what a person will usually do is they'll say the problem is all the other person, right? The problem is all the other person. Uh, that's never true. It's never true. The problem is always both people. But that's what unhealthy people will do, won't they? A lot of finger pointing. A lot of the problem is all outside of me. It's never inside of me. But let's say that the person, you know, they got into that first relationship, got married, even had kids and stuff. But... Because of this lie, this, this really stupid lie, that marriages and relationships can be the problem, and marriages and relationships can be unhealthy or healthy, what does an unhealthy person do? They say, it's the marriage or the relationships that's, that is the problem, so I'm going to leave this one get into a new one, a better one, right? A healthier relationship. I'll just go out and find this non-existent, ethereal, e imaginary concept, which is marriage, but it'll be a healthy one, right? This ethereal, non-existent thing that's just an idea, it can be healthy or unhealthy. So I'm going to go find another one. And uh, because it'll feel so good at the beginning, I'll get into that. And, uh, and everything will be fixed, right? Because I'm leaving that, that unhealthy, quote-unquote, marriage for a healthier, quote-unquote, marriage. And then they end up with the same problems. Why? Because marriages and relationships can't be healthy or unhealthy. People can, but relationships can't be. If you even if we're talking about non-romantic relationships like a relationship with your mother or a relationship with your brother, can the relationship be healthy? Nope, still can't be healthy or unhealthy. One or both of you can be healthy or unhealthy, but there's no such thing as the relationship, some personified third entity between you that can be healthy or unhealthy. There's no such thing. I've got you thinking, don't I? I've got you thinking. How, for how many years have you walked around hearing people say, oh, that's an unhealthy relationship, or I left, a, I left an unhealthy relationship, and you just swallow that up, don't you? Swallow that up, you don't question it? Because everybody uses those terms, and because the whole world uses them, including People who should know better, professional therapists and psychologists and quote-unquote marriage counselors. Heck, because marriage counselors even exist, you look out at the world and you say, well, it must be true. 
it must be true. Marriage counseling is a grift. It's a grift. I'll tell you why. Not only can you not counsel the marriage, not only is there no such thing as the marriage being the problem, not only is there no such thing as a marriage being healthy or unhealthy, but when we're talking about what the problem really is, which is healthy or unhealthy people, how, what is the only way that unhealthy people get healthy? So no such thing as unhealthy marriage, right? So what do you got? You got two unhealthy people. Those two people, what is the only way they get healthy? Is it A, by pointing at each other and saying he needs to do this and she needs to do that? Is that the way they recover from their emotional disorders and get healthy? Or is it B, they look exclusively at themselves and work on themselves? Aha, uh -huh. now you're starting to see why marriage counseling is such a grift, aren't you? When I say grift, I mean it's a, it's a, sh it's a sham. It's a, it's a fake industry. I can tell you from firsthand experience that any time somebody like me wants to help somebody like wants to help a married couple and I, I go into it understanding that I cannot fix their marriage their marriage is not healthy their marriage isn't unhealthy the only thing I can help them with is with the work they're doing on themselves so she on her so she working on herself and he working on himself that's the only thing I can help them with. That's the only thing that they can do at all that will have any positive effect on anything at all. Even my knowing that, even while I know that, the tendency for both of them, for both partners at all times, I, I call it the train um, running off the tracks, the train running off the tracks. What I mean is that as long as I can uh, keep the wife's focused on herself, if I can keep her focused on herself, what she's doing, what she's not doing, what she could improve in, what she's doing very well, if I can keep her attention right there and, and help her not begin saying, yeah, but he did this or he's doing that or he's not doing this other thing, as long as I can do that for her, and as long as I can do that for the husband, then I say, this is good. We're, we're, this is all constructive and productive and healthy. The instant that one of those partners begins saying, uh, talking primarily about what the other is doing or not doing, the train has left the tracks. Why do I say that the train has left the tracks? Because... I can't, for example, you, you listening to me right now, I can't, I can't do anything for you. You can only do things for yourself. 
if you are going to identify, for example, that you need to improve, that you're weak in a certain area or you're unhealthy in a certain area, and that that's something you uh, need to work on, and then you're going to put in the effort to do that, that's all you. I can't do it for you. I can't make you do anything. I can't cause you to do anything. Only you can. This is the nature, this is the true nature of authentic recovery. And it's it's a sad thing I have to talk when I talk about recovery I have to I have to put that in there, that qualifier. I'm not just talking about the world's idea of recovery. I'm not talking about these marriage counselor, these fake marriage counselors, false ideas of fake recovery, of just going through motions and just getting by for your entire life or, you know, just preventing divorce forever. When I'm talking about authentic recovery, I'm talking about a person truly resolving the issues at the root of their emotional problems. Uh, a wife cannot do that for a husband, and a husband cannot do that for a wife. So anytime their attention goes to what he's doing or what she's doing or what he's not doing or what she's not doing, the train has left the tracks. Now, all of this emotional energy and attention and time is just energy going right out the window. It's just going right out the window. So the train's got to get back up on the tracks. How do you do that? Stop worrying about what he's doing or not doing. Somebody asked me the other day, is it, is it honestly, this was not a, a follower of Last Symptom. This was a friend of mine. He said, tell me the truth. With all of the issues I'm dealing with at home, so he's got a wife who's, She's got issues. She's got serious issues. And it complicates his life, you know, because they are married. They do have children, you know. He cares for her and, and these sorts of things. But he said to me, do you think, even in my circumstances, that I could find genuine contentment? I said, yeah, yeah. Genuine contentment is not dependent on our circumstances. And I've said that so many times. There are no exceptions. <laughs> you know, I, I, I've told the story about how uh, there were groups of people um, in the Nazi concentration camps in Germany. Entire groups of people who people looked at them and said, this is, uh, it's ridiculous that nothing robs them of their joy. Nothing we can do to these people robs them of their joy. Now, how can that be? It can be because inner contentment and peace is not dependent on what's going on outside of us. It's only dependent on what's going on inside of us. And now, can you connect that with the reason why marriage counseling doesn't work? Marriage counseling, as soon as you get a couple into marriage counseling, the fingers start flying, man. The fingers start. I know it. And I don't talk to couples together. 
I, I talked to I talk to couples separate, but my talking to them involves what you need to do individually, what you're doing wrong, what you could improve on. Let's say that the the other partner. Let's so let's say I'm talking to a husband. Let's say your wife never gets healthy. What's that got to do with you? What's that got to do with you and your inner peace and contentment? You see, your inner peace and contentment depends entirely on you getting healthy. And you being healthy is independent. It's completely disconnected from what other people are doing or thinking or saying or feeling or behaving the way they're behaving or anything like that. Your emotional health, your inner peace and contentment is independent, completely disconnected from those things. So why do you keep getting distracted by what she's doing or not doing or how she spoke to me? You, you understand that emotional health is not being in, in an environment where um, unpleasant things never happen to us. That's not what being healthy is. Being healthy is how we view it. How will we think about it inside of ourselves? How do we react toward it? And those sorts of things. It's all inside of us. But this idea that you're going to get healthy, and the, then you're only going to be surrounded by peaceful people and peaceful circumstances, and everything's just going to fall into place for you, like some kind of magical uh fantasy story or something it is a completely false way of thinking about the thing i still have to deal with people who are you know very much uh what's the word i'm looking for dramatically unhealthy i still have to deal in my personal life still have to deal with a lot of people who are dramatically unhealthy but this doesn't rob me of my inner peace and contentment or of my emotional health. Why not? Because a large part of emotional health is not just avoiding those things. It's knowing how to, well, I should say this. It's not managing them. It's not managing those things. It's how do you manage yourself in the presence of those things. That uh, is worth thinking about. An enormous part of emotional health is how do you manage yourself in the presence of unpleasant things or unhealthy things. So can a person be at peace and content, even married to a woman who's uh, doing her darndest to make things very complicated for you? Yes, you can be. Because emotional health, inner peace and contentment, that has nothing whatsoever to do with a life free of frustrations or of challenges. It has nothing to do with that. So I think we've discussed pretty thoroughly the reason marriage counseling is complete. Horse papui doesn't work. 
it doesn't work. Because unhealthy people's tendency already is to say that the problem is not me, it's you. Even if one person goes into quote-unquote marriage counseling and is spending most of her time or his time in with the marriage counselor, what is that person using that time for? To try to justify herself or himself and to... Uh, as a, really as a as a forum for complaining about the other partner. Isn't that true? See, you take that away. Is it still marriage counseling? No, it's just counseling. Counseling works. Marriage counseling doesn't work. Why does counseling work? Because when you're talking to an individual, you can main, uh, help them maintain focus on the problem. The problem is them. The problem is always the individual, not somebody else in the individual's life. Now that is not to say that everybody in the individual's life is healthy and doing things right and that they're not frustrating and that they're just the easiest people in the world to get along with. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying uh, that those aren't problems. Those aren't problems. Those are frustrations and inconveniences. And we all live with those. We all live with frustrations and inconveniences. The frustrations and inconveniences did not disappear out of my life the day I got healthy and, re- and authentically recovered from my emotional disorder. It's just the way that I handle things, the way I think about things, the way I interpret things, the way I react to things, the choices that I make for myself, my behaviors, my thinking, my attitudes, those have all changed. And so even in the face of the same stressful, frustrating, inconvenient things, it's a world's different. It's worlds different for me. Not that the frustrations and all those things have, the nature of them have completely changed, but my thinking about them, my attitude towards them, my behaviors and my choices have changed. What's the most important relationship in your life? I'm not asking you for your opinion. I'm asking for the reality. I want you to answer the truth. Let me see if I can reword that. I'm not asking for what you think the most important relationship in your life is. I'm asking in reality, what is the most important relationship in your life? Well, it's the one you have with yourself. The the reason why I hesitated there is because if you're, I'm a God-fearing person. And I believe that uh, my relationship with God is of utmost importance. Now, some people will say that the relationship with God is the most important one. And I, you know, I might be persuaded to, to reconsider, but I disagree with that. Maybe there's something I'm missing, but here I'll tell you my line of thinking. I say that the most important relationship in your life that you will ever have is the one you have with yourself. And then 
your relationship with God. Now, some people might say, well, that's sacrilegious or that's uh, blasphemous. But hear me out. The reason why I say that is because I was, you know, I had an emotional disorder and I know the effects of that. The effects of having an emotional disorder and of having a, not being healthy, so therefore not having a relationship with yourself, is that you can't receive anything nourishing in an emotional sense or a spiritual sense. So uh, I've talked to you in the past about how God or even other people can love you all day, every day, all year long, all your life long. But if you, if you are emotionally unhealthy to the extent that you view yourself, that you view yourself as unlovable, then you can't receive it and it can't do you any good. It's kind of like I used an example once of a lady who's starving to death. She's starving to death and you bring her an apple and you, you say, please, I want you to have this apple. You, you, you need to eat here, please eat this apple. And you extend your hand to her with the apple and she knocks it out of your hand. So you say to yourself, well, that didn't work, but she's going to die if she doesn't eat. So I, I know the solution to this problem. I'll go get two apples. Two apples will do it. And you come back with the two apples and you give them to her and she slaps them out of your hands. Why does she keep slapping them out of your hands? She, well, for whatever reason, she doesn't want the apples. She doesn't view herself as being deserving of the apples. So she keeps slapping them away. She may appreciate the gesture. But when she thinks about herself and she thinks about herself consuming the apples, she says, uh, I'm so worthless that I don't deserve these apples. And I, you know, it, it's, it's wrong for me to take the apples. And she keeps slapping them away. Well, that's what happens with unhealthy people. So you can extend love to them. God loves people. He loves all people. But if an individual perceives himself or herself as being undeserving of that love, well, then they don't benefit from it. So it's, it's not for a lack of God loving people or a lack of family members loving that person or, you know, of even anybody, any, anybody loving that person. It's not a lack of that. When a person is unhealthy, the problem is that they're refusing it. They're refusing to allow themselves that. So do you see why I say that the more important relationship, I think, is the one you have with yourself? Because that involves learning to love yourself, learning to forgive yourself, learning to value yourself appropriately and learning to view view the nature of your value appropriately once you do that you open up the floodgates so that when people love you you can benefit from it including god's love so god's a relationship with god is super duper important in my opinion being a God-fearing prayer, I know that not all of you are, but in my opinion, it's 
of utmost importance. However, having come from uh, a life of profound emotional disorder and knowing the nature of that, um, I would say that the relationship with that a person has with himself or herself is even more important than the relationship with uh, God, because once you have a good relationship with yourself, then then you can have a good relationship with God, but not before. You ever heard that expression? Have you ever heard the expression that you can't love others if you don't love yourself? I always thought it was a, a pleasant sounding riddle. Um, but I, you know, honestly, in the first three, four, five years of my authentic recovery, that's all it was. Just a riddle. I didn't see how it was true. Part of the problem was that I thought love was just a feeling. Like, I, if I feel affectionate things, that's love. But I've come to learn that love is not a feeling. Lo love is principle. And as principle, it uh, often involves the emotions. I mean, in, emotions are involved, but it's not an emotion in and of itself. It's more principle than anything else. Now think about the expectations that you have of yourself. Think about the way you treat yourself. What are your expectations of yourself? How critical are you of yourself? How patient or impatient are you with yourself? The reason why I ask this is because of this very important truth. The expectations we have of ourselves and the way we treat ourselves. When I talk about the way we treat ourselves, I'm talking about inner self-talk, the perspectives we have toward ourselves, toward our value, those sorts of things. So the expectations we have of ourselves and the way we treat ourselves forms the very foundation of our expectations toward others and the way we treat others. That's why you can't love others if you don't love yourself. You first have to love yourself so that you view yourself as deserving of love. However you view yourself influences greatly the way you view others too. Do others deserve to be treated with patience? Do others deserve to be treated in a forgiving way? Do others deserve the benefit of the doubt? Very hard to do that for others if you're not doing it for yourself. In fact, the people who have treated you the most critically and cruel in your life are the people who inside of themselves treat their own selves that way too. On the other hand, the people who have treated you the kindest and with the most patience also view themselves as treat themselves that way inside of themselves. Let's talk about patience. 
I was just telling somebody the other day that the way that it has worked out for me, I, I was never a patient person before with people. I was instead impatient and demanding. But that's the way I was toward my own self, too. Man, very demanding, very unreasonable in my expectations of myself. If I'm demanding and unreasonable in my expectations of my own self, do you see how I'm going to turn around and I'm going to hold my wife or my girlfriend or my brother to similar expectations? I'm going to say it's fair. It's fair for me to do that because I hold myself to those critical, impatient demands. But as far as patience goes, I now say to myself, if I'm patient with myself, first of all, I know my own imperfections. I know my own imperfections, my mistakes, my flaws. And yet, I take the time to be patient with myself. And I say to myself, if I'm patient with myself, who probably deserves patience less than anybody else I know, well, then I must be patient with others. Because how can I be impatient with this other person who deserves it much more when I just showed patience for my own self uh, in a circumstance where I probably uh, deserved it even less than this person does. Of course I'm going to extend patience to that person. But, you know, it also, patience involves a willingness to put things into context. You consider, you know, is the person tired? Is the person young? Is the person under stress? Patience does that. It put thing, puts things into context. The context helps with the patience. Why are you willing to do that? You're willing to do that because you care for the, the, the person. All right, we're talking about another individual, but now let's turn it to ourselves. Why, do, why are we patient with ourselves? Because we care for ourselves. How about being kind? If I treat myself kindly, again, this involves self-talk my attitude toward myself. And I know how imp my imperfect nature makes being kind to myself and a lot of times it's probably not not totally deserved, but I'm kind to myself anyway. Then, of course, I will be willing to be kind to you too. But if I'm not, if I say, no, nope, I don't deserve that. I don't deserve that. I'm not going to be kind to myself. I'm going to be hateful and mean to myself. Well, I say, fair is fair. My daughter makes a mistake. I'm not going to be too kind to her either, am I? I use that model, my perceptions of myself and my treatment of self, to inform what's fair when I'm dealing with you too. How about jealousy? You're in a relationship. Uh, you're not jealous about your wife in an unhealthy way. Why? Why would, why would you not be jealous over a partner, over your girlfriend or your husband or your wife? 
Well, let's think about it for a second. What's the healthy way of perceiving yourself? Well, what's the truth? What's the true way to view yourself? I am an adult, free, moral agent. I have free will. I can do whatever I want to do. I can make any decision. Let's say, instead of saying I can do whatever I want to do, let's say this. I can make any decision that I want to make. All right, because some people might say, well, the, you know, the police, you try to rob a bank, the police can stop you. They can physically stop you and before you even get through the doors. Okay, fair enough. Maybe you can't do everything you want to do, but you can make any decision you want to make, can't you? Do you enjoy that? Do you enjoy that freedom? I do. I really do. In fact, I enjoy it so much, it's changed my life. Before, when I was unhealthy, I viewed things as being like I'm, like I'm a prisoner, where I'm just forced into doing these things. Oh, i got to get up every morning, go to work. I have to go to these social events. I have to perform a social role, right? And during my authentic recovery, recovery I, re- I realized, no, I don't. No, I don't. I don't have to do anything. I choose to. Even the choices that I continue to choose to do, which I view as kind of like miserable parts of life, it's still something I'm choosing to do because the alternatives, the alternatives are even less appealing to me. But think about the reality of what's going on there. I'm, I'm not being made to do anything. I'm choosing to do it. I'm choosing it. Wow. That's pretty liberating. Even the things I'm doing, which I would, you know, say that I would wish I were fishing instead of recording this video. Okay, but nobody's making me do this video. I'm, I'm still choosing to do it. Would I love to be fishing? Yeah, but apparently I'd, I would rather be doing this video more. Even though I think, wow, it'd be so nice to be sitting on the side of a lake or a pond or something, fishing for largemouth bass, even though that sounds great. The fact that I'm sitting here recording this, what does that mean? It means I want to do this more for whatever reasons. I am choosing of my own free will to do this because I want to do this more than I want to do those other things. Because if I wanted to, to fish more, that's what I would be doing. Nobody's making me be here. Wow. That's liberating, powerful. So do you, do you appreciate having free will like that? Remember what we're talking about? We're talking about not being jealous at other people. If you enjoy your free will that much, 
and you recognize it and you value it. Do you allow for others to have as much authority over their own free will that you yourself enjoy? You do realize, I hope, it's not up to you one way or the other. <laughs> there, there's such a thing as people not realizing the power that they have over their own selves and the, the, the power that free will uh, grants their lives. There is such a thing as people not understanding that or realizing it fully. The same way that I, for example, said, oh man, I have to, my boss makes me go to work. No, my boss doesn't make me go to work. I choose to go to work. There's a big difference. At any time, I can choose to not go to work. But, you know, there are consequences to that, and those consequences are less appealing to me than just getting up in the morning and going to work. That's true for everybody. So there might be this illusion from time to time that I made my wife do something, or my wife has to do something, or my husband has to do something, or I made him do something. But it's only an illusion. Nobody, no adult, has to. To make any decision one way or another at all. Nobody can make them make one decision or a different decision. Only they can. So if you appreciate that having that 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 power over your own life, over your own um, self-determination, do you look at other people and say, I value your right to that too? I've said it before, I'll say it again. Not even God himself will stoop down from heaven to stop a person from making their own choices. So who do you think you are? He doesn't do that to you. And you appreciate that he doesn't do that to you. So who do you think you are trying to do it to others? Do you want to be selfishly used by others? So you're, they don't care how you feel, what you think. They don't care about you as an individual. But let's say that you're handsome. Or let's say that you've got a, a, a high position in, of authority or something. Or let's say that you've got a lot of money. And so they only value you for these superficial things. And they want to use you selfishly for their own benefit. So, hey, lots of friends, right? They want to be your friends. But they don't care about you. They only want to be your friends because so they can say, I know so-and-so. I'm friends with so-and-so. Or maybe to get favors, financial favors, or political favors. Would you, do you like being used that way? You're just a tool for them. Not a person, but a tool. So would you like to be selfishly used by others? Probably not, but ask yourself this. Am I selfishly using others? You see, you, we think about things in relation to ourself to better understand how to, what's the proper way to view and treat others. 
It is all in the context of love, right, and relationships. Let's talk about 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Now, for you, those of you who are not religious, we're not getting into religious talk here. This is just, in, it just happens to be in the Bible, this perfect definition of what love is. And it lists these things that love is. And I, I wanted to go through them, not to get into a religious discussion, but to talk about love. And I wanted to, to play the why exercise with you. You all remember what the, the why exercise is? The why exercise is where we, we say a thing, like for example, I would say I'm insecure. All right, why? Uh, because when I get around people, I get anxious. All right, why? And you keep asking why until you get to the real reasons, the foundation, the fundamental reasons where all of this why sprouts from, like a plant. So a lot of folks are familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, 4 in the Bible, where it describes love. And before I, my authentic recovery, I thought, and I know that my father thought this too, it's just a checklist. You just go down the checklist, and then you just try to uh, go through the motions of these things, and then, then that means that you are experiencing love, or that you're loving somebody. And through my authentic recovery, I realized that is not what the scripture is at all. The scripture is not a checklist of things to do. Rather, it is a description of what love truly is, so that people can make self-examinations and ask why. Why would love do this or not do that? Why am I not experiencing that or am experiencing that? So really it's an excuse for the why exercise. I'm going to read it and then uh, we'll go through, we'll play the why exercise, all right? So the way it goes is this, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous. It does not brag. Uh, does not get puffed up. Does not behave indecently. Does not look for its own interests. Does not become provoked. Does not keep account of the injury. It does not rejoice over unrighteousness or you know if that's too if that sounds too religious for you you can say it does not rejoice over tragedy or uh, suffering but rejoices with the truth it bears all things believes all things hopes all things endures all things love never fails well, let's go back through it now. Let's play the, the why exercise. Love is patient and kind. Why? Well, we kind of talked about it, didn't we? It's kind. If I treat myself kindly, with my self-talk, my attitude towards self, and I, I understand my imperfect nature. I understand it, it's, a, it's an undeserved kindness. <laughs> Funny to say, but it's true. Being kind to myself often is an undeserved kindness. But 
remember that God also treats people that way. People don't deserve anything. He, he does good things for us anyway. I promised I wouldn't, wouldn't get into a religious discussion, so i got to tread carefully here. So do you see that if you're kind to yourself and then you look out at like your family members or the people who you care about, of course you're going to be kind to them too because you're patient and kind with yourself. I've, I've said in the past that patience is a kindness, and to be kind requires patience. You cannot have one without the other. They are soldered together in the middle there. It's not like you can be kind without being patient, and you can't be patient without being kind. To be patient is a kindness. Love is not jealous. Why? Well, we kind of already talked about it, didn't we? When we were talking about the law of individual inherent rights, responsibility, and authority, or free will free moral agency, self-determination. You, you enjoy it. You view those rights and that power over your own life, and you value it. When you look at others, you value that too. If you're talking about envy, why would you not be envy? Why would love not be envious? Because envy is looking at something good that somebody is enjoying and wishing to take it away from them, wishing that you had it instead. So do you see how love could not act that way? Because love, by contrast, would celebrate. It wouldn't envy. It would celebrate good things happening to somebody you care about. Love does not brag. Why? Why does love not brag? Because it views, because a person who is experiencing love is viewing himself correctly, the nature of himself or herself correctly, and then by extension viewing other people correctly too, the nature of other people as individuals correctly. I'm not better than you. I'm not greater than you. We're equals. So notice, I'm not less than you either, but I'm not greater than you either. We're equals. What's to brag about? There are some things that I'm excellent at that you are not excellent at, but uh, there are also things that you're excellent at that I'm not excellent at. Love looks for the things, looks for the positive things in other people. The same way when you love yourself, you say, yeah, I'm, I'm terrible at math, but I am excellent at painting. Terrible at math, but I'm excellent at painting. There's a lot of me to love. And you do that for other people. You know, you are terrible at painting, but you are excellent at math. There's nothing to brag about here. Because you are strong where I'm weak. 
and I'm strong where you're weak. We're equals. Does not get puffed up. Sort of the same thing, right? I'm not better than you. I'm not less than you. I'm not better than you either. We're equals. Uh, does not behave indecently. What does that mean? You remember last, in the previous episode, I talked about viewing people appropriately. I, had, I Actually, I talked about when does abuse begin? And do you remember what I said? It was really interesting. It, it's not when somebody grabs you inappropriately or hits you or breaks things or calls you names. That's not when the abuse begins. When does it begin? It begins when a person does not view your the nature of your value or the nature of your feelings value appropriately. That's when the abuse begins. Now, what is this aspect of love here we just talked about? It does not behave indecently. In other words, it doesn't undignify others. It doesn't devalue others. It doesn't treat others with an unhealthy, false attitude regarding the nature of their worth. What does it do instead? If, if authentic love does not behave indecently, what does it do instead? It celebrates, it dignifies people. It looks for ways to praise and raise people up. To celebrate their value. To emphasize their value and de-emphasize their flaws. So that's what love does. It does not behave indecently as far as undignifying people in the way we speak to them, perceive them, interact with them, but it instead values them, dignifies them, lifts them up, celebrates and emphasizes the positive, de-emphasizes flaws and imperfections. Does not look for its own interests, it goes on to say. Why? Notice it says does not look for its own interests. Now, some of you might be saying, well, Brian, you always said that you have to uh, prioritize your own needs. Like, for example, you, you have to take care of your own needs first and then take care of other people's needs. But, you know, you're, you're saying the Bible here says does not look for its own interests. Uh-huh. I'm glad you pointed that, that out. Because notice what it does not say. It does say does not look for its own interests. It does not say it does not prioritize one's needs. Needs. When I say prioritizing needs, I'm, you know, <laughs> food is a need. Oxygen is a need. Intimacy is a need. Water, drinking water is a need. Um, what movie we're going to watch tonight is not a need, is it? Um, whether or not I take a walk or I stay and play cards with you is not a need, is it? So what the scripture says here is that it does not look for its own interests. This is more in line with preferences, preferences, not needs.
so we're trying to make plans to go on vacation, you and I. And you want to go to the Bahamas, and I want to go to the North Pole. Should I say, well, listen, Barnett, over at Last Symptom, he says, i got to prioritize my needs over other people's needs, so uh, we're going to the North Pole. No, no, because, see, those aren't needs. Those are preferences. My interests are going and seeing the North Pole. Your interests are going to the Bahamas. If I love you, what will I do? I will say, you know what? I would rather go where you're going to be happy because really the reward for me is seeing you happy and being there with you. So we can always do the North Pole later. Let's go to the Bahamas. That's what that means. It doesn't mean, uh, you know, for example, if uh, you're in an airplane and the oxygen masks come down and they say put your ma- oxygen mask on first, you say, well, that scripture, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says, I better put their oxygen mask on first. No, th- that's not a preference. <laughs> oxygen is a need. And you need to take care of your need first so that then you can be helpful in helping other people. Does not come, uh, become provoked. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 goes on to say. It does not become provoked. Why not? Why does love not become provoked? Well, because of these other qualities that we've discussed. Patience, understanding, self-sacrificing, valuing the person's free will and self-determination. Doesn't take things personally. Why doesn't it take things personally? Because an individual is viewing the nature of himself correctly and the nature of others correctly. What am I getting at there? If you say something to me, even if it's directed at me and it's about me, can it reflect truths about me? No, at best it can only reflect truths about your opinion of me. Your opinion of me. It can't reflect truths about me inherently, who and what I am. So if I keep that in mind, you see, and you say something that could, uh, prov- that some people might use to provoke themselves. And I'm viewing that correctly. I'm viewing the nature of me and you correctly. You see how I would not get provoked. But there's those other qualities too we talked about patience, understanding, right? Doesn't get provoked because I'm patient with you. Don't get provoked because I'm trying to be understanding. I'm not insisting on my own way when it comes to preferences and things like that. I value your free will and your self-determination. I don't take things personally. You see, one only gets provoked when one does not view things these ways. It does not keep account of the injury. Why not? A lot of people I talk to say, my wife brings up things I did 10 years ago that I'm working on. Keeps bringing them up and throwing them in my face. Wives say the same thing to me. My husband will say the nastiest things to me. I'm working so hard. I'm working so hard. And he'll look me right in the face and say, and just 
demolish me with criticisms about things that I did wrong a year ago. Is that love? Of course that's not love. It can't be love. Love doesn't do that. But let's play the why exercise. Why doesn't it do that? Why does it not keep account of the injury or of somebody's mistakes? Because love is understanding and kind, remember? It's understanding. It's kind. What was something else we said that it does? It emphasizes what? What does it emphasize and what does it de-emphasize? Genuine love emphasizes positive things. And what does it de-emphasize? Flaws. Flaws and mistakes and errors and weaknesses. It de-emphasizes those things. It lifts up and dignifies people by focusing on the good. It does not rejoice over unrighteousness. That unrighteousness word might uh, give some people like the heebie-jeebies because they don't like the religious tone to it. But basically it just means that it doesn't celebrate when people suffer. So, for example, this would be uh, an example. This would be like um, you have an argument with your spouse the night before. You're like, no, I, you better not do that. You know, that I, I completely disagree with your decision to do that. And the person follows through with their decision and they suffer for it. Well, rejoicing over unrighteousness would be like you saying, uh-huh, uh-huh, there, see, you got what you had coming to you. I told you not to do that, see, see, uh-huh, yeah, you paid the price, didn't you? You paid the price. Right? It's like you got your comeuppance and you're celebrating inside emotionally. Love doesn't do that. Love says, I, I disagree with your decision, but I hope you all the success in the world. I want to see you succeed, not fail. I don't want to see you get hurt. Even if you do follow through with this decision that I think is going to end up with you getting hurt, that's not what I'm hoping for. It bears all things. Does this mean it tolerates all things? So like you can't ever get a divorce, you can't ever separate, you can't ever split up with somebody, you have they they've they, you got to have them in your life for the rest of all time? No, that's not what it means. It bears all things means that it remains hopeful and positive. So, you know, honey, you you have no concept of boundaries. And I have told you what the consequences were going to be if you kept sleeping around on me. And I'm not going to allow that to be a part of my life anymore. So I am going to follow through with the divorce. But my love for you will bear even your betrayals, your failure to try to care, to get better, and I will continue loving you from a distance forever and ever and hoping good things for you. So it bears all things does not mean that it tolerates all things. And uh, bears all things does also does not mean uh, the absence of consequences. It simply means 
the person can the person's love remains um, hopeful and positive believes all things does that mean that a person is completely naive like you know what you tell me you believe in unicorns and uh, in Bigfoot and so I I completely I 100% believe in Bigfoot and unicorns too nope instead it's simply that uh, love remains hopeful and positive so it believes all things in the sense of remaining hopeful and positive I know he can do this even after we're divorced and he's going to be out there I'm going to be worried about his well-being and I'm going to be hopeful for him and, and think positively about about what is possible for him hopes all things right endures all things endures all things it means you just got to stay in the marriage for all time right or in the relationship for all time no matter what the person does no matter how abusive they are no matter how unfaithful they are and all these things it's just going to endure it right no you're confusing again enduring you're confusing that word enduring with tolerating enduring all things just means that the love does not disappear there may still need to be consequences divorce the rest of your lives may not be spent together at all but you see love would not say for example well I'm divorcing this man or this woman and now I hope that they die I hope they suffer for the rest of their lives and uh, you know they're never going to get it right and good good I hope they don't would, would that be love no love would still endure you would still care for the person hope good things for them you would not want to see bad things happen to them and you would remain hopeful and positive that given time that they will be okay they can do this perhaps this suffering and these consequences will lead to positive things I hope so I truly hope so I want them to be happy and healthy eight uh, verse eight love never fails it says again it remains hopeful and positive why because of all of these other qualities we've talked about here so we've run out of time uh, I had more to talk about but we've run out of time I hope that this uh, episode is one that uh, you find useful in your relationships which are not healthy or unhealthy but you are you're either healthy or unhealthy and your partner is either healthy or unhealthy the secret to your health your inner peace and contentment is not making sure that nagging your partner to do things differently to get healthy themselves the secret to your health and happiness is you getting healthy if you do that you see then the way that you you interpret these interactions with your partner the way you interact with them the way that you react to them the way that you behave the decisions you make the peace that you experience this is all going to be independent of uh, 
whether the other person is healthy or not. And all that means is that you would improve, and because you improve, you would experience the benefits of your improvement. Of course, if both of you improve, that's, that's gold right there. That would be the ideal circumstance, wouldn't it? But you've only got control over you, don't you? So there's no sense in being um, emotionally and uh, uh, your attention, your focus being where uh, it doesn't belong on what your partner's doing or not doing. Keep it focused on where you have power and where you can make a difference. That's on you. If you do that, your life will improve no matter what. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining me. Uh, Have a wonderful weekend. Do something nice for yourselves. I'm going to go play darts tonight. I've been invited to go play darts, so that's what I'm going to be doing. Uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying it, getting into it. All right, talk to you guys soon.